0: From the studio in Sun City, Arizona Boomer Radio presents Wealth DNA with Ron the Ronald Naraki. Wealth DNA gives you insights and methods for increasing your net worth. Ron's experience dealing with local and international markets give him insights that can be valuable to any investor. Now here's the host of the show, Ron Naraki.
1: Hello. Welcome to the Wealth DNA Radio Show. We're honored that you're joining us today. Regardless of where you are in the world today, whether you're tuning into the live show or listening to the archive, as many of our listeners do, I'm confident you'd be glad you joined us. And whether you plan to start a new business in the future or you recently started one, you're running a successful business, or your business is struggling, or you're an investor, you should get a pad and pen, or your electronic advice, uh, a device, whatever you use to take notes. If you're driving, of course, and you don't have a recorder for taking notes, you can go back and take notes as you re-listen from the archive. And let me remind you, I think it's the morning morning uh, wake-up here. I'm still not fully awake, I guess. Uh, we uh, If you don't gain some new knowledge during the show, we have a 200% money-back guarantee. Yes, we'll refund double what you paid to listen. And admittedly, I'm confident you won't... Uh, be asking for any refunds. I won't have to pay any out since our guest, who might appropriately be referred to as the entrepreneur's entrepreneur, uh, will have some great information to share. Now, why would we call him that? Well, just stay with us. You'll find out. Before we jump into our topic for the day, you probably realize we had technical problems with our guest's line and even my microphone connection for a few seconds. So I didn't get to ask H.L. Quist two key questions related to our topic that show, What Will 2016 Bring? So I asked him after the show and want to share his two responses to kind of close out that show a little bit more uh, correctly. Then we kind of abrupt, abruptly lost him a second time. First question, First of these two questions, What are the least dangerous asset classes to put our money in 2016? and I'm paraphrasing, but basically using his words, cash and patience. Look at the oil sector. It's down another notch. And, of course, Friday that uh, that changed uh, a little bit. I don't know where we are today. I haven't checked in. I have clients that wanted to buy the oil majors now, but 33% of the producers could file Chapter 11. And, yes, these low oil prices are indeed a threat to the oil industry. Now, there are good uh, buys in dividend-paying stocks, and they're getting better as share prices drop. And, of course, beginning of the year, share prices were dropping. And in his mind, that includes utilities, munis, convertibles, preferred shares, and even treasuries. I'm not fond of treasuries, but I guess they're better than CVs. And the second question I wanted to uh, ask is kind of a closing question. I usually ask our guests guests um, each show. We've covered a lot of aspects of where we're going, and there are there some key ones you'd like to add or emphasize? And one that he uh, mentioned earlier in the show, uranium. He would consider a long-term hold due to, as he talked about again earlier in the show, China's major shift to nuclear power plants. And at this point in time, he sees that uh, uh, gold and silver miners will will uh, uh, not necessarily do well in the short term, but long term will. And they could be a good opportunity. We just need to wait. And he added. The election, if there is one, and I'm emphasizing if there is one, is uh, in his mind, he feels that uh, there could be some crisis that allows the current administration to avoid having elections. So, the election, if there is one, could be a dynamic that would change the economic and market outlook. Hmm interesting points so that again could change the future of gold and silver he said a republican win would be very bullish in his opinion there's an increasing probability that miss clinton will not be on the ticket remember you heard those things here first now we have a tradition of using a quote to set the stage for each show's topic and today is no different But I had a hard time picking. There are so many great, great quotes out there uh, that uh, I really had a hard time picking one of them. So maybe our guest will also share his favorite, too. But here is one of them that I really like. If you're not a risk taker, you should get the hell out of business. Let me repeat that. If you're not a risk taker, you should get the hell out of business. That quote is from Ray Kroc. He's obviously the founder, well, I should call him the father of McDonald's. In reality, he wasn't the founder. Uh, he actually bought that from the McDonald brothers. Now, today is Monday, January, no, January, yes, 25th, double-checking here. Uh, it is Monday, you never know when your mind is not fully awake. It's Monday, January 25th. It is 9.05 in Arizona, 11.05 a.m., on the U.S. East Coast, where our guest is, and 1705 in continental Europe. Today is the only to ever like it, and we'll do everything possible to make it a great one. You're listening to the DNA Radio Show. I'm your host, Ron Naraki. show airs every second and fourth, Monday at 9 a.m. in Arizona. Your time may change. Now, I certainly hope you can join us each time we air, but if you miss some shows like the prior ones on government-sponsored organizations that really do provide some great guidance to entrepreneurs and small business, or you want to re-listen to some of the shows, you can find them on the archives. That is, of course, on www.wealthdna.us, where we list each of the shows, both upcoming and archived. Now, if you have a problem finding a show, feel free to contact me, ron at wealth dna.us our sponsor today is bi solutions corp a residential real estate fund in the phoenix scottsdale area incidentally 15 years ago bi solutions corp was also an entrepreneurial startup the u.s equity markets which have been volatile uh, lately and i'd say all of this uh, first part of the year are off to a negative start asia which has been even more volatile was up overnight europe which is just closing is down and brazil is up Mixed bag around the world based on our conversation on the last show I'm selling more as the market recovers than I'm buying on the dips and as I've mentioned I've lost I've never lost money excuse me taking profits and I recommend that for you as well the advantage of joining us for the live show is you get to ask questions or make some comments there is a chat window below the radio player on the internet uh, that is the best way And of course you can call in uh, though both both are options and uh except you're listening to the Archive. Trust me on this one. If you're listening to the Archive, you can't reach us. Our guest to discuss entrepreneurship is James Beach, a serial entrepreneur. He also teaches others about entrepreneurship. He's a speaker, radio show host, and an author. His first book is School for Startups. Jim received his MBA from the University of Hawaii and Japan, America Institute of Management Science of Tokyo, Japan. He started his career in Japan and even worked for the other Cola Company. I say that jokingly since I spent many years with PepsiCo in Europe, so he was with the other company. I should share one of Jim's early ventures. At the age of 25, he started American Computer Experience, and over the next seven years, he grew it to 12 million in revenues, with over 60 permanent and 700 temporary employees operating in three countries and 39 states. Some might say not bad for a beginner. Let's give a warm radio welcome to James Beach. Welcome, Jim. Thank you for joining us and sharing some insights about your passion. Thank you so much. I greatly appreciate being here. Now, I gave a, a brief overview of your background. How do you introduce yourself at a cocktail party?
2: You know, I'm not very good at that because it doesn't—I don't fit into a generic bucket. You know, it's hard <laughs> for me to, to answer that question. And so, okay. usually, I say I'm a radio host and an author, and I let it go at that. And if they ask a the follow up question, I give more detail. But usually, I just go with that.
1: Okay. All right. Well, that's that's good. So I did cover those two, it uh, for sure. Now, how do you explain? Well, let me let me first ask what others' perceptions are. Um, and even you know what more I think about it. I, I shared a quote on um, entrepreneurship. And do you have a favorite quote uh, that uh, you often share with people? Yes, I do, and I'm not sure, unfortunately,
2: Ron, who said it originally, but I love the quote, now is the time, you can't do it yesterday. And it it encapsulates the idea, the belief that you've got to get off the sofa, throw away the remote control, and do stuff today. You know, you can't go back and do it yesterday. You can only promise to do stuff tomorrow, and then you normally don't do it. Now is the time to start a business. Even if the economy is bad, now is the best time to start a business. And so I really want to encourage people to get off the sofa, throw away the remote control, and go fulfill their dream now. So many people dream of being an entrepreneur, but most people who have that dream aren't acting on it, Ron. So I encourage people to get off the sofa and go do it.
1: Okay, I did a little research on that quote, but it be, we may have to to uh, attribute it to you. There are, of course, quotes on the best time to do something is uh, twenty years ago, uh, and I guess it's the plant a tree was the Chinese proverb, which I use often. And uh, the next best time is today. So uh, this might this one might become your uh, your quote if we can't find the original author. So it's currently yours until we find the, the proper author. How's that?
2: Okay, that's fine. I didn't want to quote myself. I don't like when people quote themselves. Ah, uh, why not? Why
1: not? Why not? You got to you got to take take uh, ownership for those things that you're uh, you're good at. Now, I'm I'm sure there are various perceptions. I know I have some of what entrepreneurship is. What does the average person you talk to think an entrepreneur entrepreneurship is?
2: Well, I I think if we were to play Family Feud, the game show on television, and we were to put the top three answers on the board. Most people would define entrepreneurship as having something to do with creativity, something to do with risk-taking, just like the Ray Kroc quote that you just Mm -hmm. gave in Mm -hmm. your introduction, and something to do with passion. I think a standard definition that 99% of America would agree with is that entrepreneurs are creative people who take risks doing things that they're passionate about. And so I think that that's the standard perception of entrepreneurship. I unfortunately disagree with all three of those
1: words. Really? I, I think okay. That, well, tell us, yeah, tell us more, think because I I I would tend to be in that average category. I would think that was that was a pretty good uh overview, but yeah, go for it. Tell us tell us why not.
2: Well, that's why people are sitting on the sofa. So, how many times uh, Ron, have you heard someone say this? Well, you know, I want to be an entrepreneur, and I just don't have my great idea yet. When God strikes me with a creativity lightning bolt and I get my inspiration, uh. I am going to act, and I'm going to jump, and I'm going to go do something. And I think that because people hear that, they, they think that, that they don't act. But in fact, according to the Global Entrepreneurship Monitor, 93% of businesses around the world are copies of existing businesses. So the vast majority of entrepreneurs are actually copying somebody. And so we're on a McDonald's theme. You know, there's McDonald's, Mm -hmm. there's Burger King, there's Crystal's, there's In-N-Out Burger, right? There's Five Guys. Is it any less entrepreneurial to start another hamburger joint? I, I don't think it is. I think you still get full credit. If you have happy customers, they don't care where you got your idea, your inspiration from. If there's money in the bank, your bank doesn't care where you got your idea from. You know, if you walk into the bank and deposit $100, they don't go, oh, by the way, we have to take $5 off the top because you didn't create this idea yourself, you know. Mm -hmm. No one says that. You know, if you were around a dinner table and telling your friends about your new business and they said, well, where'd you get this idea? And you say, well... I was reading Inc. Magazine, and I saw this guy out in Arizona, and he's doing something really cool, so I decided to do it here in Georgia. Your friends aren't going to go, oh, well, then you're not really an entrepreneur. You're a loser. They're they're still going to be jealous and envious of you. So no one really cares where your creativity comes from. It's an interesting PR point, but it doesn't affect your business. Your business is about solving problems and making customers happy, and if you're doing that, no one cares where the idea came from so my response to creativity is if you want to start a business go on google type in free business ideas and you'll find that there's like a thousand websites that give away ideas to start great businesses what's wrong with doing one of those i don't think there's anything wow. wrong with that so i'm not a fan of creativity you know it's awesome when you are creative but i think most of the time we call those people artists Cool. I, you know,
1: I, so, I have to agree with you. So, in other words, the 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 definition or this perception, we can use it as an excuse to not get started. I like that. That's that's a exactly. very important point. And, I, you and maybe you have a better one.
2: The risk is the exact same way. Here's the excuse. Well, you know, my two boys are about to go off to college, so now's not a good time for me to risk that business to start a business. But yeah. if I tell you, boy, when I get, you know, fifty thousand dollars ahead, I'm going to do something, I'm going to take that risk. Well, when you talk to lots and lots of entrepreneurs, serial entrepreneurs, the people who do it again and again and again and again, Mm -hmm. they don't take risks. They try everything they can do to reduce the risk. They use other people's money, thereby Mm -hmm. reducing their risk. They go out there and get customers before they get started, thereby reducing their risk. A, A serial entrepreneur hates risk and does everything they can to Reduce the risk so that it's a no brainer, right? I love starting a business when I have a 99.9% chance of succeeding. So I want to tell a, a quick story about one of my in laws, Joey. Joey had a dream of owning a, a bar, a restaurant, and he could only save up $5,000. And so for $5,000, he rented an old barber shop. It was an absolute dive, it had a linoleum floor and exposed Mm -hmm. metal rafters and cinder block walls. And it still had those big rings on the floor where the barber chairs used to be. And he started a bar for $5,000 the first week. He could barely afford a keg and some, you know, canned beer and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But he made enough money to stay open until the second week. And in the second week, he was able to buy a little bit more liquor than... Six or seven months into it, he was able to renovate the bathroom. And so he built up very slowly with almost no risk, only $5,000. Mm-hmm. Well, a guy came in across the street and spent $3 million on one of those brewery places where they brew their yep. own beer right there. They had the huge vats in front. He walked mm-hmm. in and it had all that expensive stuff. And my question is this, how many beers do you have to sell to recoup a five thousand dollar investment, <laughs> and how many beers, Ron, do you have to sell to recoup a three million dollar investment?
1: Wow! And the, yeah, the, you it, know, it, that was a thousand times as much, more than a thousand. Well, times more than sure. a thousand
2: times, sure. you know, uh,
1: fifty thousand times.
2: And so right. anyway, Joey has been in business now for twenty one years. He now owns seven bars and restaurants. And, of course, the $3 million brewery across the street went out of business within nine months, right? Sometimes when we limit our risk, we are doing ourselves a huge favor. I love starting a business with $500. Your chances of succeeding are infinitely higher. Mm -hmm. And so I think risk is great for bungee jumpers and parachutists (laughs) and kayakers who like to go underwater and stuff. But I hate risk, and I I don't want to start a business with risk. Well, people say, well, then you can't start a good business. Well, 430 of the Fortune 500 businesses were started with $500 of contemporaneous money. So it can be done. As a matter of fact, the vast majority of the time it is done that way. They didn't start Apple with a million dollars. They started right. Apple in a garage because they didn't have any money. Michael Dell didn't start Dell with a million dollars. He started in his dorm room for $1,000, right? Don't tell me you need a bunch of money to start a business. I don't believe it, and history proves you wrong. So I'm just like with creativity, I have a very counterintuitive belief of risk. Risk is bad. It's something that should be avoided. Mm-hmm. And you can start a business in today's world with under $500, My wife started a business two years ago. It made $68,000 profit in its first year. She works full-time. She takes care of our children. We have four children in the house. She Mm -hmm. cooks dinner every night, Ron, and she still made that business $68,000. She started with $500. Don't tell me it can't be done. I can find you too many examples of people who are doing it.
1: Wow, great. I, I love that. You know, while we're on this idea of perceptions, and I think you've, you've said it very, very well, and by the way, I might even summarize that to say that maybe entrepreneurship is solving problems and making customers happy, as you used in your phrase. So maybe that's really what it's all about, uh, and whether that uh, problem has been solved by somebody else a different way doesn't doesn't make you any less an entrepreneur. So I, that, very, very good. But one of the other perceptions... Is that most entrepreneurs are in their twenties? So therefore, if I'm in my fifties, uh, it's too late. Um, and also that uh, they, they start high tech businesses. So that the, uh, uh, the, the the bar and the brewery were, you know, that small little exception. Uh, they're all high tech businesses. We see Facebook and Google and those kinds of things. And that's what uh, I at least think most people perceive. Uh, well, you know, where do you stand on that? And what do the statistics tell us?
2: Well. I started a business in my early, mid-20s, and mm-hmm. I was lucky that it succeeded. I think most people who start businesses in their 20s are not prepared for it. They're right. not mature enough yet. They're not ready. I don't invest in businesses of 20-year-olds because most of them are going to fail, right? We see the Zuckerbergs and you know Bill Gates. He started, I think, when he was 17 or something like right. that. Those are the vast, vast, vast exceptions to the rule. Normally, 20-year-olds blow up. They spend too much money. They get in trouble. They're just not good at creating the systems that allow for predictability of profits. And I think we are seeing that today. We have lots of these companies that still haven't figured out how to make money. We have, I don't remember his last name, but Jack something or another, the guy who started Twitter, they fired him mm-hmm. once, and now they've brought him back. Twitter's not going to succeed if you own Twitter stock. My goodness, get out of it. It's you know they can't figure out how to make money and right, right. they have figured out how to have a role in society, but unfortunately, that role is free. You know mm-hmm. no one's really paying Twitter for anything and so I don't believe that Twitter has a long, successful future in front of it at all. The twenty year olds that succeed are the exceptions. I like 30-year-olds. I like 40-year-olds even better, right? 40-year-olds have Mm -hmm. 20 years of experience and history and hindsight, right? You know, uh, there's some real value to remembering what happened in 2001, right? Right. You know, there's some real uh, benefits to you and your shareholders, the idea that this profit term is important. Well, I don't need profit. I'll build a business based on how many people look at it. Well, no, you know that doesn't work out in the long run. And so I think that with age comes wisdom and intelligence and experience, and I'm a big believer in that. I look at some of the things, Ron, that I did in my 20s. I've raised a bunch of venture capital at one point, and the first thing I did was went and bought those laser projection systems that project mm-hmm. your logo down on the floor like they do at the NBA game. And I had three of those in my office. You know what the r o i is on a laser logo projection system? Oh it's, it's exactly got be uh,
1: zero uh, or negative <laughs>
2: yes, you know, so it was I did some really stupid stuff in my twenties, and I see that happening again and again and again.
1: Well, at least you didn't buy the Ferrari. Let me remind our listeners, uh, you're tuned to the Wealth DNA Radio Show. I'm your host, Ron Naraki. I look forward to you joining us every second and fourth Monday. Our sponsor today is BI Solutions Corp., a real estate fund in the Phoenix-Scottsdale area. Now, if you missed some of the prior shows or if you want to re-listen to them, we maintain an archive of shows on www.wealthdna.us. If you'd like to get an email reminder of the shows or have trouble finding a past show, send an email to me, ron at wealthdna.us. We'll also keep you posted about future shows and events. A reminder, during the show, we welcome you to ask questions. And even though I pay attention to everything our guest is saying, I do try to keep an eye on the chat window. It's right below the radio player, or you can call in the numbers, 917-388-4162, and our producer would either get you on or share your question with us. Our topic today is entrepreneurship. Our guest is James Beach, a serial entrepreneur who also teaches others about entrepreneurship. He's a speaker, radio show host, and an author. His first book is School for Startups. Just in case some of our listeners may interpret serial entrepreneur to mean he's failed often, I should add that one of Jim's early ventures grew to $12 million in revenues with over 60 permanent and 700, and temporary, employees, 700 temporary employees operating in three countries and 39 states and all of that in just seven years. And, Jim, let me go to when you got started and even before that. Were your parents uh, running their own business? Did you have a role model? Uh, Were you raised as an entrepreneur, or did you just kind of develop uh, without that kind of uh, advantage?
2: No, I was raised to be the CEO of Coca-Cola, and at the age of 23, Coca-Cola fired me and so I was escorted to the door. Uh, My father was a physician, and he ran his own private practice, so in some senses he was an entrepreneur, Mm -hmm. but it was not something that uh, we talked about. We talked big business, Fortune 500 at the dinner table, and they were a little bit surprised when I became an entrepreneur. Uh, It was certainly not something that they had anticipated. They were 100% supportive, but they did not push me into this direction at all i think circumstances did if i hadn't been fired from coca-cola i would have stayed there forever
1: so okay that was my uh,
2: my dream was to stay there forever
1: all right did you have any exposure to uh, you know starting your own business as a, as a kid uh, you know whether it was a uh, bike route or uh, mowing lawns or maybe uh, you know being part of junior achievement which i think a great great starter for many kids any of those exposures
2: Absolutely nothing. I never had a lemonade stand. I didn't do any of it. You know, when I was 16, I had an internship at Coca-Cola. When I was 22, I had an internship at Coca-Cola. Uh, mm-hmm. I every I, I put all of my energy into big, tight, brand name companies. That's what I, I really dreamed of. I took Japanese and got a Japanese NDA because, you know, in the 80s, Everything was Japan based. They were taking over the right. world, sort of like right. the way China is now. And sure. so I did that so that I would be sexier
1: to large corporate employers. Mm-hmm. No, well, well said. And, and I remember the book, uh, Japan Inc., and I was with Xerox yeah. at the time. And, uh, you know, Japan was eating everybody's lunch. And, of course, the car industry, they did extremely well uh, and, and, and hurt very many other businesses or woke them up, in probably a better phrase. But,. Uh well said. I have to admit, I'm in that court too. My parents basically assumed and kind of taught me and and you know encouraged me to go find that you know corporate job uh, or even government job, as those are safe and uh, you know get a good education, get a good job, get your good pension, and everything will be fine. Of course, during our lifetime, pensions more or less went away. Uh, so uh, I guess we just took away another excuse that if you didn't uh, grow up an entrepreneur and your parents weren't, then you, you can't uh, you can't succeed. So I guess that that uh, excuse is gone too now.
2: I think so. I'm, I'm afraid <laughs> so.
1: Now tell us about when you did start. You were, as you said, you were in your 20s. You started what turned out to be a very successful business uh, early age. Share with us your life situation at the time: single, working somewhere else, frustrated. Uh, did you just happen to see a need? You know, What was your life situation at the moment?
2: Uh, broke is the best way to describe it. I had been fired from Coke, and I wanted to go back to architecture school. I decided I wanted to be an architect. And my parents said, that is a wonderful idea, but we're not going to pay for it. And so I tried to find a business that I could start that would go for three months a year and support me for the other nine months a year. So I made a list of things, you know, uh, pool cleaning, landscaping, summertime businesses, and one of them turned was summer camps. And so I said, well, I'll start a summer camp company. Well, in seven years we grew it to the largest summer camp company in the United States, but it also had all sorts of other uh, opportunities that came up. We managed the Boys and Girls Clubs, and we did a lot of work for Disney. We did a lot of curriculum development. Our summer camps were at Stanford and MIT and Georgetown and UCLA. It had Mm -hmm. nothing to do with sports. We were involved in anything that wasn't sports-related. And it was something that I had done as a kid. I had been to a computer camp. I know that sounds Mm -hmm. pretty dorky, but I'm a, a dork. And I've been to a computer camp in the 70s. And I saw the opportunity to, here's that magic word, copy what someone else was doing. I didn't have Mm -hmm. a creative idea. And so I said, you know what, I might as well just copy what I do know, and I'll do it better than them. They were based at Clark Crest Resort in Connecticut, which is a really nice place in the 40s. And by the 80s, the, the 90s, when we're talking about it, it was an absolute dive. Uh, and so the question is, would you rather send your kid to Stanford and MIT or Clark Crest Resort in Connecticut? So I did it better than they did, which is, again, one of our you know, central tenets of entrepreneurship. If you don't have an idea, copy it from someone else, but do it better than they do it. And so uh, my biggest problem was I was just broke. And because I was broke, I also needed to start for very cheap. We started that business with two thousand dollars that we borrowed off of a credit card, mm-hmm. and were able to still grow it to, as you said, you know over ten million a year in revenue and several hundred employees so even though we started small, we only did fifty six thousand in revenue the first year, we were able to get on a three or four thousand percent a year growth rate and turn it into something pretty special
1: miles. Wow. Uh, it's pretty impressive, and uh, I would have thought most people would tell you that trying to find a three-month job to you know, kind of finance your other nine months is impossible, so you're just wasting your time. So obviously you weren't wasting your time, and another excuse has just been uh, kind of debunked. You know, one of the things I forgot completely at the beginning of the show, and I always like to make sure that our listeners have your contact information so they can find out more about you, the you know, talks and presentations, the radio show, the books. Uh, what's What's a good way to find out more about you?
2: Well, there are several ways. They can go to Jim Beach, B E A C H dot com. Mm-hmm. They can go to School for Startups dot com, and I'm also oh, on one, Twitter at Entrepreneur Jim.
1: Mm-hmm. School for Startups is is probably one I would have um, suggested as well. Okay, and if they want to reach you, both those sites do have a way to uh, to contact yeah. you and get more information. Yeah, they do. Perfect. They do. All right. Excellent. And. Uh, you know, one of the reasons uh, my parents discouraged me is indeed this, this risk aversion. Uh, I, I, I think you t- touched on it. Uh, so would you disagree with, uh, with Ray Kroc that if you uh, aren't willing to take a risk, uh, then uh, you should stay away from entrepreneurship?
2: I am going to disagree with that a little bit. And okay. I love McDonald's, and I love what he did and what he accomplished. Uh, but on the other hand, I don't like risk. I'm going to do everything I can to take as little risk as possible. And if I can start a business with $2,000 borrowed off my credit card, you know, I'm only risking time, really, at that point. I'm not even risking reputation. If I had failed, people would have said, well, at least he tried, and he's only 24 or 25, so let's see what he does in his 30. You know, my reputation would not be ruined permanently in America like it would be in Japan, for example. You know, so I didn't think that it was that big of a risk. And again, my wife's business, she risked 500 whole dollars to make 68,000 in the first year. You know, I wouldn't call that risky at all. So, uh, you know, there are some certain risks. Sometimes you get a little bit aggressive in terms of, you know, your financing or maybe you hire people that you shouldn't, or maybe you're a little bit aggressive in terms of marketing and things like that. And that may be risky, but I just don't, I don't like risk. You know, Mm -hmm. I'm not happy taking risk and I've seen non risk takers do too many cool things. Uh, You know, Ray Kroc did take a lot of risks from my Mm -hmm. understanding. He didn't treat the McDonald's brothers very well, you know, he certainly took some risk in terms of expansion and the way he treated people. Um, those things, you know, all count as risk, um, but I, I'm not going to 100% agree with that. You know, that's what's sure. different about me and my book. We, We try to teach very simply that anyone can be an entrepreneur. There are ways to be a successful entrepreneur, and all you have to do is follow certain rules. And spending as little money as possible is one of my big rules. I, I don't like spending money. I, I've seen too many people start, especially service businesses, with not a cent of money and still come out with some really great products.
1: Yeah, one of the points I wanted to to reach on this, because I think you're you're doing a very good job of defining risk is is what's your downside in this. Obviously, the upside was was huge, especially in your business. You went from broke to, to very successful Uh on the other hand, you're saying, "What was my downside?" And others define risk as failure. That's a risk. I might it might not work out, so that risk is there. But you're you're not spending a lot of time on that. You're just knowing right up front that if you're going to pick a three-month business that's going to finance you for nine months, which was your objective. You know, it's it's not easy to do, and if you are successful, it's going to be a huge success because everybody said it couldn't be done. So the fear of failure isn't really part of your, your definition of risk, and I like that because otherwise I think people get caught in this trap of, well, risk to me is failing. And failure is is great. And, and you know, I, I, that was another quote I was thinking of bringing on was uh, was one from uh, Michael Jordan. He says he's, he's missed thousands of shots and screwed up many games when they counted on him. And, you know, on the other hand, that's what made him good, is he was willing to, to do that and get better. So I, I I think it's important that you know your definition of minimizing risk. What's my downside, and minimize that. Don't spend the five million dollars to to start that business. Five hundred bucks, you know, or two thousand bucks, or two ten thousand bucks makes a lot of sense. I really appreciate that, and I wanted to make sure we emphasize that point. Now let's talk about uh, kind of. Can I add one thing? Sure, Real fast, sure. oh, Ron? please do. Yeah.
2: I am not a good-looking man, but I dated lots of really gorgeous women. And married uh, a gorgeous woman, you know you can't be afraid to go up to a gorgeous woman and say, "Hey, my name's Jim. I, I want to buy you a drink," you know, because right. that's the way you end up with a gorgeous woman is by asking gorgeous women out, right? There's absolutely oh, so. nothing wrong with her saying, "No, I'm not interested in you." Well, then you move on to the next gorgeous woman down the road, right? You know they are like buses. Gorgeous women come by every five minutes. So do gorgeous men. I'm not being sexist here. You know, so failure is awesome as an entrepreneur, as, you know, if you're going to sell one out of every 100 potential clients, one out of 100 you're going to close, well, getting those 99 no's teaches you how to make your pitch better. It teaches you what is important to the buying customer. And all of a sudden you'll change your pitch a little bit, and you'll make a sale and you'll be like, oh, so that's the difference. I made a tiny, tiny modification in my pitch, but all of a sudden I'm closing things now. It makes you better. Failure is one of the best things that an entrepreneur can have.
1: And if you don't ask, the answer is no.
2: That's right. That's right.
1: And if you don't start it, it can't succeed. So, That's right. Uh, no, good addition. Really appreciate that. I want to. A- Kind of switch a different perspective. Let's look from an investor's perspective. I was an angel and venture capital investor for a while, investing in, in small companies, obviously, while I was in Europe, and then realized I really didn't have the knack for picking the right winners from the lots of opportunities that come across. Now, crowdfunding is is rolling in and, and soon will be uh, much more uh, prevalent. And so that means a lot of investors will be playing in that arena, even though they never planned to be uh, angel or venture investors. So what is it they should be looking for when assessing the management of an entrepreneurial venture? Uh, You know, you you talked a little bit about age earlier. What are the other things that, uh, you know, when assessing the management, we always say management's the most important thing. Uh, What is it you would, as an investor, assess in terms of this uh, person's likelihood or persons or people's likelihood of making this uh, business succeed and, therefore, I make money on my investment? Number one, can they tell you what problem
2: they are solving, right? You have to solve a problem for people to get excited about your business. So I want them to have a very clear understanding of what the problem is. Number two, will people pay you to solve that problem? There are lots of problems, and I've seen businesses. uh, I was a judge at a business plan competition, and a guy had uh, created a company that would read Wikipedia to you. And I'm like, that's a really great problem that no one needed to solve, and I'm not Mm going to pay mm -hmm. for that solution, right? I can read Wikipedia just fine. I don't need it read aloud to me. So will you pay for that problem to be solved? Number three, do they have a true solution? Does their solution make the world a better place and solve that problem? And then number four, will lots of people pay for it? In other words, can they scale it? Right, so, you know, these are the sort of questions that I want to ask the management team and see what their answers are. Their answers should be very clear that they understand what the problem is, how they're solving it, and how they're going to sell, you know, that thousandth customer. It's easy to sell the first customer. Okay, now how do you sell the second customer? Okay, now how do you sell customer number three? Okay, now tell me how you sell customer number 300 and 300,000, right? because those are the sort of things that create real value is when you can actually scale a model and get millions and millions of individual sales. So these are the sort of things I like to ask them. I also, I don't like entrepreneurs that have all of the answers. And Mm -hmm. if you're an entrepreneur and you tell me you know everything, well, (laughs) I think that we're finding that you have a little bit of hubris there, right? If an entrepreneur thinks that they're going to own 51% of the company and demand that they own the company, to me, that's a tyrant in hiding. That's someone who's Mm -hmm. uh, probably pretty insecure with themselves. I know that if you control 10% of the company, you can control that company. And I don't need to own 51% to be in charge. Uh, I've had lots of companies where I was a 20% equity owner, but I was still the one very clearly in charge. So Mm -hmm. I think there's all sorts of warning signs that you can see. If you say, well, I have uh, maybe an improvement. I have a suggestion. If they don't go, wow, that's a great idea. Thanks for that. I'm going to take that to heart. Boy, I'm not going to invest in that person. You want someone that's going to listen to your advice to heart and hopefully get better because of listening to you. So. These are some of the things that I look for, and I like to be able to know that they're gonna have a plan to grow it to millions and millions of customers.
1: Wow. Okay, excellent list. I, I'm taking notes here as we go because I think these are applicable to everything. How about in, in terms of the actual uh, product or service idea? Obviously, some of those points apply as well. Uh, but you know, they're, they're, they're pitching an idea. It's the uh, uh, newest way. And uh, let's take the Wikipedia idea again. Um, you know, how do you assess the product? Is it is it just the you know the ability for people to pay or the willingness of people to pay for it? Are there other things in people's ideas, whether for product or service, uh, that you would look at
2: i think it entirely comes down to will people pay for it and Mm -hmm. in the way i'm looking at business plans today the way i'm trying to operate is i'm proving that before i go and ask for investors you know if someone comes to me and says i want you to invest or i want to tell you about a business the first thing i ask is what are your customers telling you and they say well we haven't started yet i'm so you still can go talk to customers Go talk to customers. Mm -hmm. What have your customers already told you? They should already be giving you feedback. So even if you haven't developed your product because it takes a million dollars to build the the press that you're going to Mm -hmm. use to make your product, you should still go talk to a 1,000 potential customers and say, okay, if I had this product, would you pay for it? Would you pay $29,000 for this product? And see what they say. You know, I think that – I expect you to have done some actual on-the-ground research of actually talking to customers and seeing what they they feel about it. And so, you know, I think that we're in a world today where this true feedback of customers is a requirement. You need to go out there and ask the world, will you pay for this? And there's just no way to alleviate that. This is a requirement these days. I need proof that you can sell this product, that people are going to buy it from you. How many letters of commitment do you already have? Really? You don't have any? You have zero letters of commitment? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, you have zero chance of getting my money. So,
1: Great, great, great points. Uh, one more on that is uh, how about the ass- assessing that market size? So let's say they've got some willingness of people to pay. How do you then, how would I as an investor... Uh, assess how big that market is. Is Would I be you know asking the, the management team, or do I need to do some independent assessment as well?
2: Well, I'm certainly going to ask the management team just to see what mm-hmm. their answer is. I may totally disagree with them, but okay. they should be able to get some market research or some data that proves the market size. So if you're coming out with a new video game, you should be able to say, well, this game sold 14 million copies. Well, there's a market size. We know that the 14 million people will pay for something very similar to this. Or if you say, you know, I'm doing something in the medical space. Well, I can look it up and see that there are 8.2 billion billion pre-planned medical events a year, people going to the doctor, people getting surgery, not people having heart attacks because that was not pre-planned. But all of this data is available so I can figure out how big the market size is I would be very skeptical of someone who comes to me and hasn't done a tremendous amount of research. You know, our, if you can't define the target market, you know, you should be able to say we're going to sell to forty five year old men who are bald who don't want to be bald anymore. Right? Mm-hmm. So most of them are going to be single because if you're married you don't really care, right? <laughs> uh, I'm bald and I'm married so who the hell cares, Ron. Right? You know? My wife says she's likes me, she's not going to divorce me, so I'm not going to go get a hair transplant. But if we can can do that math, we can figure out how many single 45-year-old bald men there are. That data is available, and so I can tell you exactly what the market size is for that hair replacement product. Um, That research is just too easy to do in this world where we have, you know, information at our fingertips. So I can't think of a situation where I can't go and figure out how big the market is. Um, it's just basic research, but I'm certainly going to challenge the management team first to see if they've done that basic research.
1: Well done. And how about other key aspects? Are there some other things that I, as an investor, should be looking at? I mean, I think you gave a, a you know a very powerful list, but may have I may have missed something in my uh, in my couple questions there.
2: Uh, you know, we haven't really talked about passion yet, and okay. I'm not a big fan of passion. I don't think that it really matters. Uh, You know, I'm passionate more about the process than I am about a particular product. But I certainly want to see how passionate they are. Are they willing to work for no salary for a year? Mm Because I am. All the businesses I've started, I started with no salary. Are they willing to put their house, are they willing to mortgage their house to start this business? oh, you, so you want my money, but you're not willing to risk your money, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. How many times have we heard that conversation, right? You know, there are a lot of ways that you can measure how all in are they, right? Are they doing this part-time or are they working on this full-time, right? Is their wife threatening to kick them out of the house yet? Because until your wife is threatening to kick you out of the house, you're not really working that hard on it, Ron. Right, mm-hmm. you know, you still. <laughs> I'm, I'm just being honest. I'm an entrepreneurial sure. guy that's been married for 25 years now. If you're not working on it to the point where your wife is mad at you, you're not working that hard. And you want my money, really? I only want the guy mm-hmm. who's about to get divorced because I want that guy. I want that kind of commitment,
1: you know. Right. So, right, so commitment think, might be a better word than passion.
2: Yes. Well, you know, six, one half dozen of the other. I'm
1: uh, okay. Yeah,
2: I don't think that the idea, the basic concepts are the same. Are you willing to put yourself 100% into this activity? Because if you want my money, I'm only investing in people who are putting 100% in, All in.
1: I love it. Now, we should uh, tell our listeners who just tuned in, you're listening to the Wealth Radio Show. I'm your host, Ron Naraki. If you missed earlier parts of the show, you definitely want to re-listen. You can just go to our archives on WealthDNA.us. Today, our guest is James Beach. Our topic is entrepreneurship. Jim Beach knows a lot about this topic. He's a serial entrepreneur. He teaches others about entrepreneurship. He's a speaker, radio host, and an author of the book, School for Startups. Jim, there are so many things I, I want to talk about. Uh, but one of the things we all know that small business is the engine of growth, and most countries have recognized this, most cities and towns have recognized this. What is that that a local or national government, uh, if they want to expand the number of startups, what can they do to uh, to accomplish that?
2: Just get the hell out of the way. You know, here in Georgia, there's a law that says if you want to sell ice cream commercially, you have to buy a $4 million machine to put the ice cream in the container. That's just the dumbest law in the world. Just get out of my way. You know, lower the tax rates and and get out of my way. And if you want to do a lot to encourage entrepreneurship, set up some sort of uh, fund to you know, make financing more readily available. I love the Small Business Administration, the Small Business Mm -hmm. Development Center. They do great, great work. I've started several businesses through SBA loans, and it works. The process is fantastic. So give me money and then get out of my way. That's all the government can do.
1: How about incubators? Now, often those those are kind of public private partnerships, but, uh, how about incubators? Have you, have you, you know, what's your, what's your view on those? Because I've seen some successes coming out of those.
2: Sure. Uh, that they have a very definite role. I've never personally used any of those services or Mm -hmm. been a part of any of those, but I agree with you. They've had some great success stories. Um, you know, if, if you can increase your chances of success by 5% by joining an incubator, I would join an incubator. Um, I personally, you know, I don't really need that anymore. I'm, You know, I feel comfortable doing you are things one. on my own. But, uh, you know, sure, I, I love those ideas. I don't know that government should necessarily be involved in those. I think right. they work better when they're done by business.
1: Okay, well, uh, I would tend to agree with you on that. In your book, you talk about multiple streams of income. Why is that important?
2: Because one will, will go away you know uh, let's go back to Coca-Cola or Pepsi Japan Mm -hmm. could have a bad year but you could still make a lot of money in the Chinese market right Uh, Mm -hmm. I'm a speaker and an author and radio if I have a bad year speaking then the other things will help support me I just think that it's about reducing risk I want as many ways to have money coming in as possible you know it's just like fishing when you go fishing do you want to have one line in the water or do you want to have ten lines in the water uh, I, I want to do everything I can to reduce risk and having as many diverse income streams as possible is the best way. It's the same thing as investing. You know, you talked at the very beginning of the mm-hmm. show about how oil is probably a bad investment right now. Energy is mm-hmm. not a good investment. Um, then you should put your money in other places. Maybe now's a good time to buy out-of-favor real estate or something like that, some other depressed mm-hmm. thing. You want, you know, don't put your eggs in one basket. It's the
1: exact same thing. Okay, and, but you did define in there. You you mentioned a real important point I think most people ignore, which it can be geographic. Uh it can be those multiple places just like you were you had your business in multiple countries and multiple states. So that diversification might be a, a you know a, a much broader term than just thinking oh, I need more products. So after I introduce my first, I got to start spending time on my second product. It might be diversifying geographically or in other ways. It might be other channels, it might be other uh, uh you know ways of selling or ways of buying or whatever else. So a very very good point that I want to emphasize because I think you know it might be hidden if somebody didn't pick up on that point.
2: I agree with you. Uh geography is usually one of the best ways to do it.
1: Okay. What so is not right, intrep- now, I think trip- we're headed
2: toward a global recession right now. So I'm not really excited about moving anywhere. I think we need to batten down right now. Um, I'm looking at a bad economic indicator, in my opinion.
1: No, I think, uh, you know, I would tend to agree with you. And obviously, the comments we got on our last show would indicate that we're in for a rough period. Uh, exactly where we end up is, is still a little bit hard to tell. But I think we're going to have a lot of governments flailing trying to. You know, pump money at the wrong, uh, wrong problems. You said earlier. So, uh, hey, when is when is an entrepreneur ready to quit their job?
2: When they get fired, right? So again, it's all about multiple income streams. Why quit your job until your boss figures out why you're not as good as an employee as you used to be? Mm-hmm. You know, used you to try to keep that health insurance as long as possible, and eventually your boss goes, you know. I used to feel like you were working 10 hours a day for me, and I feel like I'm lucky to get six hours a day out of you now. And secretly in your head you're going, well, it's because I'm spending four hours a day on your time on my business. And that's the way I do it to reduce risk. You know, I would stay in that job as long as possible, and eventually you'll get fired, and that's when you should go full time on your business because it's probably ready now. But, again, it's all about risk reduction. Stay with the income stream until they fire you. And I mean, I say this facetiously, Ron. Sure. But sure. I like my entrepreneurs to go and become smokers so that they can take that smoke break every hour and go outside for 10 minutes and smoke a cigarette. What they're really doing is getting on their cell phone and doing business for their business. <laughs> so, of course, I think facetious. But, sure. you know. I like to reduce risk, and therefore I'm going to keep the insurance and keep the income coming in until the boss figures out that I've got other things that are more important than them now.
1: Okay. It also gets you, it keeps you from getting kicked out of the house too early, I assume. That's also that's true, too, yes. Yeah. Yeah. All right. End of the last show, I mentioned to our listeners that you were involved in the most fascinating experience I've ever heard of, and I recall it stemmed from a bet with MBA students. Share that story with us.
2: Well, I had just sold my business, so my head was pretty big, and I started mm-hmm. teaching at uh, a local downtown university, one of the very best uh, part-time MBA programs in the country, ranked number eight. So good, good students. These are students who are, you know, working a full 40-hour week and then going to school at night to get their MBA. Okay. Mm-hmm. I told them how easy it was to be an entrepreneur if you followed some certain rules. And they said, no, it's really hard. And I said, no, it's really easy. And they said, no, it's really hard. And I said, no, it's really easy. I will bet you that I can start a business this semester, make it 100% cash flow positive, repay all startup capital this semester, and you, the class, get to choose the country, and the industry that I will start the business in. So the first time I did this, they chose Pakistan and furniture. So I had three and a wow. half months to build a profitable Pakistani furniture company, and I actually won this bet 12 semesters in a row by having very strict rules. The number one rule is never spend more than two, three, four thousand 3000 dollars to get started. So the Pakistani furniture company – our product, we could get these gorgeous chairs that were made in Pakistan. The fabric was a kilim carpet, a Persian rug, an oriental rug that you mm. would cut up and use that as the fabric. I could wow. get those imported into Charleston, South Carolina, for four hundred and twenty dollars each because each one was a unique work of art with sometimes a hundred year old fabric on it. I could sell them for four or five thousand dollars each wow so. I didn't have to sell very many of them to win the bet. As a matter of fact I only had to sell three chairs of the first order. The first shipment was eight chairs. I only had to sell three of them to win the bet. In the end I sold twenty eight shares in that first semester and made almost a hundred thousand dollars profit because I limited my startup capital. And that's where some of these rules came from and all of these stories are in the book School for Startups that that's where this philosophy came from, from actually winning these bets and having these bets with my students. That I'm not going to spend more than five thousand dollars, and that's how I'm going to stack the odds in my favor. I only have to sell three or four things, and I win the bet. Ha ha!
1: Wow. But at the same time, you know, I would say all the 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 uh, uh, stakes were against you because you know you're 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 being you're not controlling the market you're not controlling the product you're not controlling when you're going to do this and how long you have to do it uh you're in, in, you know and you're working in a in a job as well you're teaching at the time so you know everything seemed to be against you and uh you tend to view that as everything is in your favor
2: So it's fascinating yeah i, I, now, I it was just really
1: easy win oh I, but but un, unbelievable and you know i commend you and i didn't realize it was done that many times mm-hmm. uh so you know I'm, in a row and never lost yeah uh, is that you know an indication that entrepreneurship can be- taught uh you know you're not necessarily the best at Pakistani furniture uh by a long shot i'm sure i'm sure uh, and and you couldn't be in twelve other you know or eleven other business uh areas uh plus the ones you've done on your own, you know intentionally uh does that mean that it is a process and it can be taught?
2: hundred percent, yes. If I can teach you that creativity is not that important and how to avoid it and that you don't have to take risks, I can teach you these basics and I can show anyone to be an entrepreneur. If my wife can make $68,000 in one year while working full-time, anyone can do this. And that's my number one takeaway. That's what I want everyone to know, that you can go and be a successful entrepreneur if you throw away your remote control and get off the sofa.
1: Right, And and you also proved that you know passion isn't necessarily the most important component, which you had mentioned earlier. Since you weren't necessarily passionate about doing business uh, in, in Pakistan, you probably had not been there before. Uh, you did probably didn't have any family connections there. Uh you also weren't in the furniture business in the in the past, nor, nor was your family, so you know, yes, you wanted to win the bet, but and and minimize your risks and follow the process, but passion wasn't the, the you know, the big success factor. So all of the excuses that most people, you know, put up there, um you didn't worry about.
2: I'm passionate about the freedom and the lifestyle that comes with being an entrepreneur. I'm passionate about controlling my own destiny, and if I work harder, I make more money. That's what I'm passionate about. I used to sell purses. I could care less about purses, Ron, but I'm passionate about the money that I was able to make from selling purses, which allowed me to take my family to Disney more, which is my number one favorite thing in the world to do.
1: Wow. Wow. Let's make sure that our uh, listeners have uh, the contact information how they're able to find out more about you. One is jimbeach dot com, correct? Yes. Yeah. And then the other is SchoolForStartups.com, dot com, correct? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. All right. So it's one of the few school websites that's not a dot org. <laughs> just a reminder on that, or dot edu. I guess that would be the usual school one. So I just wanted to make sure that our listeners uh, get that properly uh, written down now we've covered a lot of aspects of entrepreneurship far more than i you know could have expected i've taken a lot of great notes and and actually some interesting insights uh... when uh, preparing my board meeting for the end of the week uh... since uh, you know why not, why not address investors the way they uh, should be addressed so why not take advantage of some of your points so i appreciate that but are there some key ones you'd like to add or emphasize um that maybe we didn't cover today or we did and and we just make sure that you know everybody all, you know understood them and and underlines them and and keeps them in mind
2: you know i want to throw out a new thing that we didn't have time to mention ron It's the okay. corridor principle when you're yes. going down this path of entrepreneurship, you're standing at a doorway to a long pathway, a long corridor. Mm-hmm. There are rooms to the right and to the left, and you cannot see into those rooms because of your perspective. The only way you can discover the opportunities in the rooms to the right or to the left is to walk down the path. The only way that you can discover what your passion may truly be is to start walking down the path. The only way you can discover all these other cool things that I've discovered in life, I never planned on being a radio host or a a McGraw-Hill author, but the only reason those opportunities came to me was because I was walking down the path of entrepreneurship. Because I'm going to say it again. I threw away my remote control, and I got off the sofa. Mm -hmm. You don't discover what life has in order for you or what your possibilities are until you try to go find them the only way to do that start walking down the path.
1: Okay, so if the first door you go into has a TV and you sit down on the couch and stay there the rest of the time, <laughs> it's not going to work.
2: Well said. Well, and, wait, and, wait, and,
1: all of our listeners know that I hundred percent agree with you on the on the T V. You can't accomplish anything watching T V and you don't learn a lot doing that. Uh it's so it it's just, you know, very very rare shows that you'll learn something and really better off just finding a you know, uh, a, a passion and going after it and doing that and you'll have a lot more fun in life and, and be a lot more successful. So I you know, totally agree with you. I look forward to having you back on sometime, Jim. Hey, we covered so much stuff and yet I have so many questions I'd love to ask you. And I think there are some great tips, both investors and for entrepreneurs that you share. You know, let, Let's have our listeners get a copy of your book, read through it. They'll probably have some questions and get you back on if you'd be willing.
2: Of course. I would appreciate that, and I'd be honored.
1: I oh, really appreciate you being here. Thank you, Jim, for joining us. Thank you. Now, after hearing all that good information, do you agree with my summary for Jim Beach, the entrepreneur's entrepreneur? And I expect that you and many other listeners, by adding his book School for Startups to your reading list in 2016, fascinating stuff. And I got to admit, he's he's quite a dynamic person. And these examples are just, you know, really get get you excited about the possibility if you just learn the steps. And as an investor, you might have been wondering why that book would be useful to you. Certainly, any, any investor involved in angel or venture capital realizes the importance of assessing a business venture. Even if you don't plan to be investing in ventures, as I talked about, crowdfunding is coming. It's here already, and it's growing, and you'll be approached by many, many Entrepreneurs asking for financing. So even if the amount you invest in that business is only 1000 or $2,000, reading Jim Beach's, Beach's book might help you double or triple the returns you get, or at least avoid being negative returns or total losses. Additionally, you'll want to re-listen to our shows on crowdfunding and our series of shows on angel and venture capital uh, that uh, we have done in the past, so find those, uh, listen to them. And one of the key reasons I mention that, it's kind of a CYA. If you do lose your money on a lot of crowdfunding opportunities, I'll at least be able to say, I told you so. Now, I mentioned earlier my parents didn't really understand entrepreneurship and creating the company that hires people. They only knew about finding the companies that others created and being hired by them. Even after I returned to the U.S., I was a successful business person, running my own business, a multimillionaire, and traveling six weeks a year. My father would still ask me, why don't you apply for a real job? I mean, parents had pretty low salaries during their career, and they would have probably qualified for the lower class economically, but they were frugal and worked hard, and they assumed that's the right way to succeed. Because it worked for them. They actually had some savings at the end of their um, uh, working career and were able to move to uh, Arizona because of health reasons, Be able to do that buy a house so um, you know I taught him a little bit about investing. My mother was passionate about investing uh, after that, and so in her seventies she became a successful investor. that was kind of her first business, but never made that connection. My father made never made the connection either that uh, he wasn 't a good investor; he uh, outsourced that to me, and each year he 'd ask me how many more years can I live where I am? And he had a, a very nice uh, place where he was in an independent living um, facility. And I would look at his assets and I'd look at his annual cost. And I would always, year after year, tell him about 12 more years based on those assets. And he never made the connection that he was making more investing his portfolio, or I was making it for him, than he and his wife had earned while they were working. So their monthly pension uh, after those meager jobs were far, far lower than what I was earning each night that I sleep. Um, So 25 years working, they get a meager pension. On the other hand, while I'm sleeping each night, I earn more than his monthly pension. So in addition to our great insights Jim shared today, I'd like to... uh, uh, add that an entrepreneur can be successful, even if they grew up in an environment where intre- entrepreneurship was not just encouraged, but was actually discouraged, as I did. So scratch that excuse off your list. As part of my digression, I also shared another similarity between people who work for others and entrepreneurs. During their careers, they both need to learn the fundamentals of investing or find one or more good financial advisor to make sure they can eventually stop working for money and have their money work for them. Let me repeat that. It's an important point. Eventually stop working for money and have their money work for them. That obviously is part of our mission here at the Wealth DNA Radio Show. Hopefully, the quote I shared helped you put, in the, put you in the mindset of, of an entrepreneur and an investor. Yes, there is a common trait between entrepreneurs and investors or at least a perception of entrepreneurs and they do take some risk. They do risk everything they invested. In. It might be $500, but it is at risk. Same thing with investors. Both have to be comfortable taking that small risk and managing that risk, doing the right stuff, picking the companies, diversifying all of the things we've talked about today. So investors... That applies to you as well. I remind you, the quote is from Ray Kroc, the father of McDonald's, more properly than founder. If you're not a risk taker, you should get the hell out of the business. And again, you are taking risks, but as Jim said, there's a lot of ways to minimize them. Minimize the amount you invest, and don't be afraid of failure. Don't be afraid of those little risks. Uh, Avoid making the mistakes. Now, I also shared another parallel with investors, you probably realize that if you're not a risk-taker, you may want to have someone else manage your portfolio, because you probably won't do very well earning 0.05% in a bank account. Regular listeners of the Wealthy Radio Show already know that our objective is to help one million people become millionaires, and I'm confident some of the information we discussed it would be extremely helpful in your journey to become one of those millionaires, whether as an entrepreneur or as an investor. Or why not both? And remember, one of the best ways to increase your wealth, tune into the show twice a month. We'll share the investment fundamentals, some great ideas, and some insights related to topics no financial advisor tells you about. Many thanks to BI Solutions Corp for sponsoring today's show. Their residential real estate fund based in the Phoenix, Scottsdale area, and a group of entrepreneurs helping investors to have income for life. The next Wealth DNA radio show will be the second Monday of February, and that is Monday, February 8th. That's coming up quickly at 9 a.m. Arizona time, same place, same time. We'll be talking about retirement insecurity with Danielle Kunkel. As usual, we have the lineup of guests and topics on WealthDNA.us, and there you'll find the archive of past shows as well. If you have some comments, suggestions, or questions on today's topic, especially after read the book, Uh, then uh, send them in, and we'll get uh, Jim back on. We'll talk about some of those uh, questions you have. If you haven't received my emails reminding you about the show or have trouble finding a show, send an email to ron at wealthdna.us. We'll keep you posted about future shows and events. Happy investing and getting to know more about entrepreneurship.
0: You've been listening to Wealth DNA with Ron Naraki on Arizona Boomer Radio. Arizona Boomer Radio is produced by the Boomer and the Babe Incorporated and can be heard Monday through Friday. You can sign up for their online magazine at boomerandthebabe.com.